Chapter 11 of How to Appreciate Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadine Kurt-Boulet. How to Appreciate Music by Gustave Coubet. Chapter 11. Concerning Symphonies. I have said that music, like all other arts, had a somewhat formless beginning, then gradually acquired form, then became too rigidly formal, and in modern times, while not discarding form, has become freer in its expression of emotion. Instrumental music, since the beginning of the classical period, has been governed largely by the symphony, which the reader should bear in mind is nothing more than a sonata for orchestra, the form having first developed on the pianoforte, and having been handed over by it to the aggregation of instruments. Sir Hubert Perry, from whose book The Evolution of the Art of Music, I have had previous occasion to quote, has several apt paragraphs concerning the earlier development of the sonata, which of course apply with equal force to the symphony. After stating that the instinct of the composers, who first sought the liberation of music from the all-predominating counterpoint, impelled them to develop movements of wider and freer range, which should admit of one melodic expression, without degenerating into incoherent, rambling ecstasy, Sir Hubert continues, quote, They had the sense to see from the first that mere formal continuous melody is not the most suitable type for instrumental music. There is deep-rooted in the matter of all instrumental music the need of some rhythmic vitality. These composers then set themselves to devise a scheme in which, to begin with, the contour of connected melodic phrases, supported and defined by simple harmonic accompaniment, gave the impression of definite tonality, that is, of being decisively in some particular key and giving an unmistakable indication of it. They found out how to proceed by giving the impression of using that key without departing from the characteristic spirit and mood of the music, as shown in the subjects and figures, and how to give the impression of relative completeness by closing in a key which is in strong contrast to the first, and so round off one half of the design. But this point being in opposition to the starting point, leaves the mind dissatisfied and in expectation of fresh disclosures, so they made the balance complete, by resuming the subjects and melodic figures of the first part in extraneous keys and working back to the starting point, and they made their final close with the same figures as were used to conclude the first half, but in the principal key instead of the key of contract. This is a somewhat more elaborate method of describing the sonata form than I have adopted in the division of this book relating to the pianoforte. Aesthetic Purpose of the Symphony Later on in his book, Sir Hubert, in discussing the type of sonata movement which was fairly established by the time of Haydn and Mozart, gives a simpler aesthetic explanation, pointing out that the first part of the movement aims at definiteness of subject, definiteness of contrast of keys, definiteness of regular balancing groups of bars and rhythms, definiteness of progressions. By the time this first division is over, the mind has had enough of such definiteness, and wants a change. The second division, therefore, 
represents the breaking up of the subjects into their constituent elements of figure and rhythm, the obliteration of the sense of regularity by grouping the bars irregularly, and aims, by moving constantly from key to key, to give the sense of artistic confusion, which, however, is always regulated by some inner but disguised principle of order. When the mind has gone through enough of the pleasing sense of bewilderment, the sense that has made riddles attractive to the human creature from time immemorial, the scheme is completed by resuming the orderly methods of the first division and firmly re-establishing the principal theme which has been carefully avoided since the commencement. The earlier symphonic writers usually wrote their symphonies in three movements, the first or sonata movement, a second slow movement in a simpler type of form, usually of the song, aria or rondo type, and a final movement in lively time, also usually adapted to the rondo form. Concerning this three-movement symphony of the early writers, it was said by an old-time wit that they wrote the first movement to show what they could do, the second movement to show what they could feel, and the third movement to show how glad they were it was over. And this may be said to describe the view of the ultra-modern music lover toward rigidity of form in general. Regarding form in music, there is much prejudice one way or the other. The sonnet in poetry certainly is a rigid form, and yet those poets who have mastered it have produced extremely effective and highly artistic poems, and poems abounding in profound emotional expression. Walt Whitman, on the other hand, was quite formless, and yet he is sure to be ranked in time as one of the greatest poets of his age. Wagner's idea was that the symphonic form had reached its climax with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yet it is by no means incredible that if Wagner in his mature years had undertaken to compose a symphony, the result would have disproved his own theory. Seems to hamper modern composers. The symphonic form, however, or, to be more exact, the sonata form, seems to hamper every modern composer when he writes for the pianoforte, and the fact that most of Beethoven's pianoforte music was written in this form appears to be the reason for his works somewhat falling into disuse. On the other hand, the form is undoubtedly holding out better in the orchestral version of the sonata, the symphony, because the tone color of orchestral instruments gives it greater variety. Tchaikovsky, Dvorak, and Brahms have worked successfully, and the two former even brilliantly, in this form. And if Brahms in his symphonies appears too continent, too classically reserved, it would seem to be not so much the form itself which is to blame, as his lack of skill in instrumentation. My own personal preference is for the freer form developed by Liszt in the symphonic poem, in which a leading motive, or possibly several motives skillfully varied, dominate the whole composition and give it aesthetic and psychological unity. And for the still freer development of instrumental music in the tone poem of Richard Strauss. But neither the symphonic poems of Liszt nor the tone poems of Strauss are formless music. That should be well understood, although it should be borne in mind with equal distinctness that these manifestations of the genius of two great composers show a complete liberation from the shackles of the classical symphony.
In the end, the test is found in the music itself. If the music of a symphonic poem which sets out to express a given title or a given motto, if the music of a tone poem which starts out to interpret a programmatic story or device, is worthy to be ranked with the great productions of the art, it not only is profoundly interesting as music, but gains immensely in interest through its incidental secondary meaning. It is the old story of art for art's sake, art for the purpose of merely gratifying the eye or the ear, or art for the purpose of conveying something besides itself to the beholder or the listener. And it seems to me that, in the history of the art, art for art's sake has always been the more primitive expression and eventually has been obliged to give way. THE NAIVE SYMPHONISTS at the risk of repeating what already has been said of the sonata, the symphony may be described as a work in four movements, the first movement usually an allegro, sometimes with a slow introduction, but more frequently without one, a second movement, ordinarily called the slow movement, and usually in adagio or andante, a third movement, either minuet or scherzo, and a final movement in fast time and usually in rondo form. It was Haydn who pretty definitely established these divisions of the symphony. He composed in all 125 symphonies, of which only a few appear on modern concert programs, and even these but occasionally. Their music is marked by a simplicity bordering on naivete, and the orchestration is a string quartet with a mere filling out by other instruments. Mozart was of a deeper and more dramatic nature than Haydn, and the expression of his thought was more intense. In the same way, there is a greater warmth and color in his orchestration. Nevertheless, the three finest of his forty-nine symphonies, the E-flat, G minor, and Jupiter, composed in 1788, seem almost childlike in their artless grace and beauty to us moderns. Beethoven's first two symphonies were written under the influence of Haydn and Mozart, but with the third he becomes distinctly epic in his musical utterance, and this symphony, both in regard to variety and depth of expression and skillful use of orchestral instruments, is as great an advance upon the work of his predecessors as, let us say, Tchaikovsky is upon Mendelssohn. Beethoven to the fore there are apparent in the sequences of Beethoven's symphonies certain climaxes and certain rests. Thus, the third is the climax of the first three. The fourth is far less profound. The master relaxes. But the fifth, with its compact, vigorous theme, which Beethoven himself is said to have described as fate knocking at the door, and his skillful introduction of this theme in varied form in each of the movements, is by many regarded as his masterpiece, even greater than the ninth. After this he seems to have relaxed again in the sixth, seventh, and eighth, in order to prepare himself for the climax of his career in his final symphonic work, the ninth. In the slow movement of the sixth, the pastoral, in which he imitates the call of birds, he gives the direction, quote, mehr Empfindung als Malerei, end quote more feeling than painting, a direction which often is quoted by opponents of modern program music. 
notwithstanding the fact that Beethoven, in spite of his own qualifying words, straightway indulged in painting of the most childish description. The seventh symphony is an extremely brilliant work, and the eighth an exceedingly joyous one, while with the ninth, as though he himself felt that he was going beyond the limits of orchestral music, he introduced in the last movement solo singers and a chorus, but not with as much effect as the employment of this unusual scheme might lead one to anticipate, because, unfortunately, his writing for voices is extremely awkward. Schubert's Genius Like Beethoven, Schubert wrote nine symphonies, but the unfinished, which was his eighth, and the C major, his ninth, which was discovered by Schumann in the possession of Schubert's brother and sent to Mendelssohn for production at Leipzig, are the ones which seem destined to survive. They are among the most beautiful examples of orchestral music. The first movement of the unfinished symphony, full of dramatic moments as well as of exquisite melody, the slow movement a veritable rose of orchestration, while as regards the C major symphony, Schumann's reference to its quote, heavenly length unquote, sufficiently describes its inspiration. Mendelssohn's Italian and Scotch symphonies are his best-known orchestral works. They are clear and serene, and for anyone who thinks a symphony is something very abstruse and wants to be gradually familiarized with its mysteries, they form an easily taken and innocuous dose, the symphony made palatable. Of Schumann's four symphonies, the one in E-flat, the Rhenish, supposed to represent a series of impressions of the Rhine country, the fourth movement especially, to represent the exaltation which possessed his soul during a religious ceremony in the cathedral at Cologne, and the D minor, which latter really is a fantasia, deserve to rank highest. In the D minor the movements follow each other without pause. There is a certain thematic relationship between the first and the last movements, and this connection gives the work a freer and more modern effect. But Schumann was either indifferent to, or ignorant of, the advance in orchestration which had taken place since Beethoven. Practically the same thing applies to Brahms, who, however, deserves the credit for introducing into the symphony a new style of movement, the intermezzo, which takes the place of the scherzo or minuet. Rubinstein deserves honorable mention, but the most modern heroes of symphony are Dvorak, with his new world, and Tchaikovsky, with his pathétique, that may help keep a sinking art form afloat. But modern orchestral music is tending more and more toward the symphonic poem and the tone poem. Liszt has written two symphonies, the Faust symphony, consisting of three movements, which represent the three principal characters of Goethe's drama, Faust, Gretchen, and Mephistopheles and a symphony to Dante's Divina Commedia. In both these symphonies a chorus is introduced. Of his symphonic poems, the best known are Les Préludes and Tasso, Lamento et Trionfo. In these symphonic poems, Liszt has made use of the principle of the late motif in orchestral music. They are dramatic episodes for orchestra, superbly instrumentated, profoundly beautiful in thought and intention, great program music in fact, 
because conceived in accordance with the highest canons of the art, and infinitely more interesting than pure music, because they mean something. By some people Liszt is regarded as a mere charlatan, by others as a great composer. Not only was he a great composer, but one of the very greatest. The Saint-Saëns symphonic poems, Rouet d'Omphale, Phaeton, Danse Macabre, should be mentioned as successful works of this class, but considerably below Liszt's in genuine musical value. And then there are the orchestral impressions of Charles-Martin Le Flair, among which the symphonic poem La Mort de Tintagile is the most conspicuous. A separate chapter is devoted to Richard Strauss. Wagner is not supposed to have been a purely orchestral composer. Theoretically, he wrote for the theater, and his orchestra was, again theoretically, only part of a triple scheme of voice, action, and instrumental accompaniment. But put the instrumental part of any of his great music drama episodes on a concert program, and with the first wave of the conductor's baton and the first chord, you forget everything else that has gone before. End of chapter 11